a shark? Yes, but not just a shark. Well, then what is it? Tiger plus a shark. What, 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 tiger shark? Oh, what? Tiger shark. Welcome back to Let's Jaws for a Minute, the podcast which takes a deep dive into Steven Spielberg's 1975 classic film Jaws, minute by minute or thereabouts. I'm Sarah Buttery. And I'm MJ Smith. And this week we are joined uh, by a guest, the uh, uh, another massive Jaws fan. We're joined by uh, Blaine Grimes. Blaine, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for letting me come talk Jaws with you all for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. You were, I think, once once I realized that this crazy idea was going to become a reality, I think you're the first person <laughs> I shared this news with. Um, and that might be above my spouse. <laughs> um, because... Uh, yeah, well, so Blaine and I have interacted on Twitter for the last handful of years, and it is either about Jaws or board games, and that's yeah. about it, <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> or old foreign films. And uh, so when, when we f- I figured this out, I was like, Blaine's who I want on the show. Blaine is going to be like, I feel like he's going to be all in on this idea, and I want him to come on. So we, we finally have you here, and because we have you here, we have to ask the question, Blaine, uh, what, what led you to Jaws? Like, why is it that we are both giant fans and and that's our primary form of communication because you have a <laughs> an impressive collection of jaws prints uh like poster prints and stuff and uh what what led you to to becoming that big of a jaws fan yeah i think my wife is like you know when can we stop buying jaws stuff and the answer is never um so so that's <laughs> a <relate>. thing <laughs> <laughs> exactly but yeah so so my jaws story is is kind of a long and winding one but uh but i tend to i find that i tend to like anthropomorphize jaws because it's been a part of my life for so long jaws was really a formative childhood experience for me so i i've spent like over the years i've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time uh thinking about and honestly probably reading way too much into the significance that jaws holds for me personally so as silly as it sounds, it Jaws feels more like a relationship with a person than a film to me. And I've had people kind of say that to me when they get to know me and stuff and I start talking about Jaws. They're like, wait, you're still talking about a movie, right? This is not a person. <laughs> um, so Jaws is, is actually one of my earliest film memories. Um, I kind of grew up, my, my mom and dad both loved movies and um, showed me movies from an early age and that sort of is what developed my love of film in general but um, really I have three three film memories from my childhood that I can really remember from a very very early age um, I remember going to see Lion King in the theaters or have memories of that I remember seeing Jurassic Park and I remember seeing Jaws uh, my parents uh, let me see Jaws at, at, at what is probably a far too young of age. I think I was about five years old. Oh I was certainly God. not. I was certainly not older than uh, than mm-hmm. five years old. So maybe, perhaps, my parents did not make the wisest choices with what they let me see um, <laughs> at that age. But 
one thing that that really early viewing experience did with me at such at such a young age was ignite you know the typical like like childhood fascination with and love for sharks just like you'd expect in any kid. So I became obsessed with things like Discovery Channel's Shark Week. Um, I had a bunch of old VHS tapes. Sadly, I no longer have them, that I had my dad record, like, Shark Bowl 94, I remember, um, <laughs> from from uh, Shark Week. Um, and then I also, around that same time, you know, five years old or something like that, I said my very first curse word, thanks to Jaws, because <laughs> I was uh, role-playing the movie with my mom. And I was like, okay, okay, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be Brody here. So you say what Brody says. And she says, uh, she said, well, what does Brody say? I said, well, you got to say, come, come on down and chum some of this shit. And, <laughs> and I got it. I got in trouble, which I feel like is kind of on them. Cause they're the ones who let a five-year-old see that movie. But, um, but so, yeah, I said my first curse word at a young age, thanks to Jaws. So, um, Jaws really instigated a lot of childhood fun and, and antics for me. Um, but I also like some of that really fun stuff aside, there was a more serious side to my early relationship with Jaws. So now we can maybe transition to the part of my Jaws story that is like, let's all get really depressed and talk about Jaws. So, so my parents, um, both divorced, um, shortly after, but around the same time within the same year or so that I first saw Jaws. And so when I tell this, and it was not an amicable divorce, there was there was a lot a lot of going on. It was a very very messy, very not not good, not happy uh, relationship. And so when I tell this story to people, like they always have that surprise reaction, like you saw Jaws when you were five years old. How did that movie not like traumatize you and scare you to death at you know at that age? But honestly, I believe that part of the reason that it didn't scare me is that it quickly became this like kind of relic or touchstone. Uh, for me, where it was like this reminder of this time when my family was together, because when they first showed it, like, I remember that event of like, my parents saying, we're going to watch Jaws, and we all got together and watched it. And that was like, uh, that was that was one of the few happy memories I have of that period of time in my life. Um, and that also, I'm just like, a, I, I lived nowhere near the ocean. So that also helped me not be scared of it. Um, it was, I lived kind of in a desert. So so oceans and sharks were not really on my day-to-day radar. Uh, otherwise, it probably would have scared me more. But to continue to make this like very long story short, after my parents divorced, I went on at that point in time. And, and for a, peri- a short period of time, I lived with my dad, who... Um, was a very violent and abusive alcoholic. Um, he was in and out of jail regularly throughout this past year, this next year, year and a half, but when I was five and six. Um, and Jaws was kind of a coping mechanism for me. I mean, I watched it almost endlessly. Um, and so I simply, like, I can't think about my childhood and all that stuff without reckoning with Jaws and the way it sort of comforted me. Um, you know, and then when I wasn't watching Jaws, it was like my afternoons were were spent like role playing scenes from Jaws, um, and I had my you know I had my like my grandmother make a shark costume for me for Halloween, so I was like I was Bruce for I was Bruce for for Halloween, and and Jaws was always there for me honestly in a way that sometimes my my parents weren't, and so now of course that I'm a little bit older, and I kind of have like those metacognitive skills, I can I can't help but like look back especially as someone who like got you know degrees in film studies i can't help but look back and read even deeper into my affinity for jaws during this like formative year these formative years of my life because i i honestly sometimes wonder if the film was working on and speaking to me on some sort of subconscious level 
because I mean, and you know, you've touched about this at times in the show already and, and will before, you know, like the shark, you know, the shark is a metaphor, um, for a bunch of things, but one among them being like Brody's particular fears and anxieties, which of course he eventually learns to defeat and he kind of restores order to this broken system. Um, and so I have to wonder if like some of that resonated with me on like, again, a very subconscious and primal level, um, as a kid, just like seeing, seeing someone like deal with a terrible situation and deal with trauma, um, like I was experiencing in my life, but be able to overcome that. So like, that's kind of the foundation of my love for Jaws and that love, of course, like never left me. It stayed with me. And it's been really cool then to see like the, my relationship with this movie grow, um, throughout the years. So to like hit a few touchstones throughout, you know, my older years, it's like, uh, when I was a preteen, we went to Universal Studios Orlando with my grandparents, um, which my grandparents then like sort of adopted me. But also uh, during when I when I was around that age, and we went to Universal Studios Orlando, um, and I got to ride the Jaws ride there, um, which is you know now gone sadly. Yeah. But that was just like a huge moment for me, um, and I have such fond memories of that. Uh, eventually, way down the road, I got to like host a screening of Jaws and give a little intro at Alamo Draft House. Which, especially now that we're in a pandemic situation where theaters are not open, I'm I'm just so I have such such great memories of that. But I I, I campaign to get uh, Alamo our local Alamo Draft House to show Jaws and to let me introduce it um, so ardently that I, I was happy when they finally gave in. Um, and then always like when I whenever I meet new people or make new friends, if they haven't seen Jaws, like seeing jaws with me is kind of part of like you've got to do that if we're going to be friends um it's it's just a requirement so it's like it's almost like if you you know you take a significant other to the meet the parents sort of thing it's like i take them to meet jaws uh almost and so like i did that with my fiance too she had never seen jaws before um before we got engaged or anything like that so so able to introduce that to her and a bunch of other friends and then um, my wife also took me to see kind of most recently um my wife took me to see Jaws on the Water, which I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast knows about. But if you don't, it's mm-hmm. it's hosted by uh, Alamo Drafthouse. And it's where you basically go watch Jaws floating on inner tubes um, uh, in a lake and divers uh, swim under you and mess with you and stuff while, <laughs> uh, while the shark attacks are happening and stuff. And it's, it's just a great Jaws celebration. Um, and then actually, even more recently than that, I went to see Jaws at the drive-in during, during the, pa- the height of the pandemic kind of. Mm. Um, when everyone here in the States was sort of locked down, um, went with my wife to see Jaws during the pandemic. And then like seeing Jaws through a pandemic lens was just a completely, um, completely different experience. So I, uh, I'm looking forward to how my relationship with Jaws will continue to evolve. Like one day when my daughter is much older than I was when I saw it getting to show her. (laughs) Um, so, so yeah, that's a, that's a little bit about like how I, uh, how I've come to know and love Jaws. That is quite the story. Um, thank you for sharing. And yeah. uh, I want to be sensitive to this. So if one, I don't want this to turn into let's psychoanalyze Blaine. Like that's not why you're here. And two, I don't want to open some wounds. So if I'm overstepping, please let me know. Um, but to me, what I hear in that story too is something that we've kind of been touching on uh, through last week's episode and maybe a little bit through uh, this episode, once we set the scene up, um, that I, I think Jaws for uh, uh, Spielberg and and the the Brody 
character in particular, like there's a solidarity in him that it sounds like you were maybe missing too. Um, you know, and, and we've talked, we've touched on this about how like solid the relationship between him and Brody and him and his kids is. Um, so I don't know if you think that that would, that like, that, do you think that played into some of your love of it as well? Yeah, you know, I'm sh- I'm sure it did too because one of the things that I felt like was a little unusual with how I interacted with Jaws is a lot of times if you show a little kid um, a movie like Jaws or Jurassic Park or or something like that where there's like, some sort of creature, they'll like fast forward through the slow bits and just want to watch the you know watch the shark attacks or the dinosaurs or what or whatever it may be, and I never really did that as much. Like I really loved the entire movie and I really had an affinity for these slower parts too. And that's kind of the only way I can explain that, um, uh, you know, as a child is like, that was resonating me, uh, resonating with me in some way on some level I couldn't really articulate. Um, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so with that, uh, let's, let's set up the scene, um, here. This is right after the, the scene where, where Brody and Sean interact at the table and they have this very sweet father and son interaction. And, um, it ends with, uh, Sean giving him a kiss. Bro, or Hooper knocks at the door. Um, oh, I should probably say the timestamp. We are at 39 minutes <laughs> and 22 seconds to 41 minutes and 21 seconds. And Hooper knocks at the door. Uh, Ellen o- goes and gets the door, uh, although it sounds like Hooper might have just walked in. Um, <laughs> he, he says that the door was open, and uh, she kind of knows who, uh, who he is, and so she invites him in, and they sit down. And he brought wine and Hooper asks Brody how his day was. And uh, they make small, small talk. And we get a little bit of Hooper's backstory about um, why he loves sharks. And the scene ends with him saying that he's going to go back to his research institute and say that there's still a shark problem in Amity. He is now convinced that this is not the correct shark. And that's sort of it. Um, but what, what did you guys notice about this scene on just kind of a large scale level? Uh, Blaine, we'll start with you. Sure. So the first thing I'll mention that stands out to me is like that most of this scene that, or this, this, you know, sort of segment of a scene that we're analyzing here is a long take. And I feel like Spielberg really. So from after the, after the knock on the door and when Hooper finally, when Hooper enters, like all of that to actually a little bit past where we're going today is, is one take. It's almost, it's almost a two minute shot. Um, a little bit short of that, but Spielberg, I feel like often doesn't get enough credit for being a master of these long takes. And I think part of that is due to the fact that he's typically not very flashy in the way that he employs them. Like other directors might be, he, it's almost like he hides them in that he uses them to, to place, special emphasis on his characters instead of drawing attention to the the man behind the curtain so to speak and so if you think about like the long takes of someone like uh joe wright and pride and prejudice or atonement like that famous dunkirk um Mm -hmm. sequence in atonement or like even more recently like sam mendes in 1917 those are examples of of like long takes that tend to draw attention to themselves um in, in very direct ways. And that's not to discredit their artistry or value or, or anything like that. It's just, it's just to say that Spielberg doesn't use that particular like formal, formal tool um, in a way that gets as much credit because it's not as immediately 
obvious. So like this long take is is really interesting to me. It's um it's interesting how he Spielberg like some of the things he does to hide these long takes like this is he will like alternate the fast and slow external rhythm of, of a scene. So like when we talk like in film studies about external rhythm, of course we're we're talking about like how edit, how usually uh, shots are edited together to create a rhythm and flow of a scene. And so like in the previous scene, the one the one that we talked to, that you all talked about last week, um, you've got something that starts out kind of slow. There's actually a long take in there as well that's not quite as long as this. Um, but it starts to pick up as Brody and Sean start to play with one another a little bit. The external rhythm increases a little bit and you get some quick shots. And then it starts to slow back down again as they speak there and kind of stare at one another. And then we get a couple of like two, one or two very quick cuts as Hooper knocks on the door and then things slow back down again. So he really like varies his rhythm so that it's not just like, hey, here's a long take, focus on this and marvel at it. Um, they're kind of hidden, nestled into like the structure of his film um, and the rhythm of his film in really interesting ways. And then he'll do really cool things like shifting the depth of field or folk or, or, or character focus in his long takes so that it's almost like he creates cuts without ever actually cutting cutting the camera um and it makes those long takes much less obvious so like as this scene begins brody is in focus in the foreground on the you know the left of the frame and hooper and ellen are out of focus in the background so brody is kind of like our main subject or we would so we would think but all of the dialogue is taking place in the background and then we get like this dolly shot that also sort of pans to set up like a conventional three shot as Ellen and Hooper and Brody um, all gather around the table in the kitchen. So it's like he's got multiple shots within a single shot, which is a really cool thing that, that Spielberg does a lot in Jaws and in his other films when he creates one one take. And then even just the way he blocks that scene within once they all get around the table, um, Ellen and Hooper sort of serve as frames within that frame to block off the doorways in the scene. Because there's a doorway leading out into the kitchen that that um, Hooper ends up sort of covering, and um, Ellen covers the doorway down into the down into the hallway where Sean wandered off into, so that those are like not distracting spaces. It actually ends up creating a very intimate feel for this this three shot. So I just like the first thing that stuck out to me when when I started watching this, um, and you gave me the timestamps was like, oh yes, it's one of these like amazing long takes mm -hmm. that Spielberg does so well and does not get the credit he deserves for. Uh, so much of the time yeah we've we've mentioned a couple of these we call them the sneaky spielberg long takes because he does do them so subtly and i think this is one of the best examples in in jaws in terms of its subtlety and i like that there is there are showy moments in jaws or showier moments and this isn't one of them but it's still just a really great uh, set up and where everyone is positioned as well is is calling back to a lot of the stuff that we talked about before and it was I think it was in last week's episode that our guest Martin mentioned that uh, generally with these three shots the person who is on the right hand side of the shot has the power in the scene so obviously when Hooper then comes in and positions himself at the table the camera sort of moves like very very slowly so it is then we see the the three characters that we need to see 
And even though Hooper is set like a little bit further back, he is on the right. So he is the person who is driving, very much driving this this scene. And he has a lot of the dialogue in this scene as well. And you talk about the the sort of the pauses and the quiet in this scene um, because I'm a crazy person. I counted or I, I timed how long it was between Hooper sitting down and when he begins to speak. Um, and it's like eight to nine seconds. It's I was quite thinking it was a... about 10 seconds. It was, yeah, it's a yeah. lot. <laughs> it is, yeah. And because I, I watched it the first time, when I watched the clip the first time around, I just watch it start to finish and don't make any notes, don't do anything. And I thought in my head as I was watching it, I was like, that's a long pause. Mm-hmm. And it feels long as well. And even though this is a scene that ultimately is quite light-hearted even though there's uh serious undertones spielberg just does the great way of creating tension in a scene that you wouldn't think would have tension in it like i found myself without realizing holding my breath (laughs) during that whole pause and then letting out like a huge exhale when hooper finally spoke and obviously when he does speak it's a bit of a punchline as well because there that pause is so long that you're just sort of you're wondering who's going to make the the, the the first move who's going to say something first what are they going to say like what can you say after the day they have just had or the couple of days that Brody has just had I mean he's really been through the ringer at this point so you are holding your breath with those characters as well waiting for them to speak and then when the punchline sort of comes it is that sense of relief and this is something we've mentioned a lot as well in that something Jaws does so well is in those moments of tension ending it with either a joke or something that's funny or something that is scary or or makes you you know shocked or or taken aback or something like that and just I don't know I I never thought that the thing I would be picking out of this scene was the tension um (laughs) but that was the first thing that kind of immediately uh jumped out at me and i think that you you get that in how long this this take is which is what you were talking about blaine and also just those allowing that space for those really long pauses as well before the the dialogue kicks in i think is so so effective yeah it i had never noticed that this was all one take before this that's how subtle the, the the one take in this is I know I've referenced this video before it's an analysis of several films and the one he uses here is um the fairy shot um but the 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 Tony Zhao video of from every frame of painting called the Spielberg Wonner I think mm-hmm. is something that very much informed me picking up on all this stuff maybe going by minute by minute <laughs> is helping too um <laughs> But that that video, if you want a really deep dive into just that aspect of Spielberg's filmmaking, um, go watch it, and then you'll be able to notice it across his career. It's wild mm-hmm. how often he uses a one take, and you don't even realize it until you've seen the movie, I don't know, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, countless times like Jaws. Um, and... Yeah, I'd never, I'd never noticed that this was all one take before, and it kind of blew my mind. I was like, I've seen this movie so many times, and I've seen this scene so many times, and I feel like I have perfect recall of the scene, you know? I feel like I know the beats of it, and 
maybe just watching it in an isolation chamber like this really brings home like the craft on display moment to moment and yeah i've never known to the point where we're still in the middle of this one take by the time we hit the end of the timestamp uh Mm -hmm. that we're discussing today like it's it still is unbroken and that's a really long shot um yeah (laughs) and Hooper is Hooper and Ellen are both really great in this scene. I really like Ellen's first line, um, or not first line, but when Hooper says, "I wanted to, I'd like to talk to your husband," and she says, "Me too." I love that line. That's such that's such a good line from Ellen. Like, and with it, you know, as <laughs> as someone who is in a long term romantic relationship, like I know we all are, it feels so relatable. Like when when your partner's having a rough time and you're like well i wish i could make this better but i also understand that they just kind of have to go through this uh and they just need to process it how they need to process it and it's re for me especially i'm a problem solver so i get really frustrated when there's nothing i can do about a situation and so it was very like i was like yep that's that's very relatable content (laughs) ellen brody um (laughs) To just say, yeah, I wish I I would also like to talk to the man, uh, and but that's not really what's happening right now. And I think Hooper, Hooper also comes in like, get you a friend like Hooper. Like he is, <laughs> he's real snarky, and he's he's real kind of like goofbally and dorky. But he's like really loyal, and he really like has a good sense of right and wrong, and he'll, you know. I think one of the things is that he doesn't let Brody off the hook for this, you know, like he, but he doesn't come in accusatory of like, you let this happen. Like he lets Brody feel the weight of the consequences of his actions, but he doesn't come in real judgy about it either. He comes in, you know, how was your day? And like, he knows he was there. He saw him get dressed down in front of the entire town. Um, But he doesn't come in like, you know, she was right. And it's like, yeah, he, he knows, man. You don't have to remind him. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's all he's been thinking of for the last handful of hours. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because Hooper is the focal point of this scene, even though he's there as a support to Brody. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing. Like, even... Even going back to the, you know, like like we were talking about, like Brody is kind of front and center in the frame when this whole one, this whole long take begins, and really, like Brody may be in the forefront of that, and he may be in the middle of the frame, but he's really in the background of this conversation that's going on as he just sort of processes his day, and I love that, and I'm so glad you mentioned Ellen too because I love Ellen in this scene. This is such a great. It's such a great scene for her, and it showcases some great writing, too, because that whole, I'd really like to to talk to him, yes, so would I, sort of thing. It's like those small moments like that give like the world of Jaws a very lived-in feel, yeah. and it makes Ellen feel like such a real character, instead of like, at, I feel like the temptation there would be to write Ellen as someone who's just there to play host in this moment. And it's like, she's just yeah. there to usher Hooper in so the boys can talk shop. But th- that's not what happens. Like, she's like, yeah, I have feelings too. I'd like to talk to him too. And then, by the way, I'm going to carry this conversation while my husband just sort of sits there and, and like, handles his day, um, processes his day that he went through. Um, mm-hmm. So I really love 
like the way Ellen is showcased here. Yeah, I I think that you're right. I think that some I don't know, maybe in the hands of someone else they wouldn't have included Ellen in this scene like you, you said though it was just you yeah. know the, the boys are talking now and she she you know left the room or went to see the kids or something but i love the fact that she is still involved in this conversation i mean it does it does involve her that is her husband there and also hooper does just kind of bowl into their house so obviously <laughs> i think she She's wants just, to like, just stealing find out. plates of food and shit <laughs> yeah oh uh, you better you better believe i'm coming on to that soon because i love it so much but just to to toot the horn for lorraine gary once again for how yeah. fantastic she is in this scene and the, there's small parts of it that make me a little bit uncomfortable but only because i think this is the closest we get as a hint to what happens in the book and that is something that i find deeply uncomfortable um mm. but anyone who hasn't mm. read the jaws book spoiler alert um Ellen and Hooper have an affair and it's completely unnecessary and I hate it. It's one of the things I hate most about the book as well as the it's ending. The worst. Um well it's just it, yeah, we'll maybe that we can have like a spin-off episode or something when we talk <laughs> about how much we hate the book um or the differences between them because it's it's really wild but yeah, there's there's a little bit of of that. I don't think it's it's not, I wouldn't really class it as, as flirtation because I think they are just, just making small talk but I think when you know what happens in the book that sort of conversation that uh, Ellen and, and Hooper are having and she's sort of like you know laughing at all his jokes and doing all the right thing there's just something in the back of my mind that is like oh don't, don't love this because I don't love that the book goes there but yes very thankful that the film does not go in that same direction because uh, yeah, mm -hmm. would would not have been good um but yeah i that that line that you that we've all mentioned as well from from ellen just there's a, a gentle exasperation to the way that she delivers the line that's just so mm -hmm. so good and we spoke a lot last week um and in the other sort of big ellen and martin scene that we've had uh previously when she sort of takes the takes the books from him and gives him the drink um, that you get such a good sense of their relationship throughout Jaws, even though in the grand scheme of things you don't get that many scenes of just the two of them or, or their interactions. This is one of the sort of three or four major intera interactions we get with with Brody and Ellen. And I, it's just, it's so, it's so great. It's a, it says so much about their relationship and how they how understanding ellen is of of brody but also that she is not hiding her frustration at all like this other guy has just come in and she's <laughs> you know in earshot of brody yeah like yeah i would really like to talk to him too basically <laughs> basically um she clearly knows him very very well she knows that perhaps as we mentioned last week he goes into a bit of a funk or just kind of shuts down a little bit and she's really just trying to she seems like a, a problem solver as well and a fixer like she just wants to get to the root of what is of what is going on and, and help even though she knows that it's probably not anything that she can she herself can take on um i did just want to get into talking about hooper in this scene because i think this scene is maybe one of the reasons why hooper is my favorite character <laughs> in jaws um he is so socially awkward and i love him so much in this scene even just the fact that he 
the gesture of bringing two types of wine is so lovable and so awkward as well. It's just like <laughs> you could see him like in the in the corner shop or something, like having that debate of being like, I I don't know what they're going to be eating. Uh, I'll just get both and just get in like all the wine <laughs> because he just doesn't know. Like I that would never cross my mind if I was going to someone's house. I wouldn't be like, what are they having for dinner? I'd be like there's a bottle of wine that's reasonably priced let me pick that one up so the fact that he considers that extra level is just so funny to me um the way that he just bowls into the house and says mind if i come in but he is already in the house is so good um he says is anybody eating this but he has already grabbed the plate and is pulling it towards him before he gets an answer I just, I absolutely can relate. I mean, don't let my podcast persona put you off uh, or or make you think otherwise. I can be quite a socially awkward person in real life. So I think I deeply, deeply relate to Hooper uh, in this particular scene because he is just so, so lovably and so wonderfully socially awkward. And it's just wonderful to watch. I think... Picturing picturing Hooper at the store with the wine is, it reminds me of one of my favorite Simpsons jokes where Mr. Burns goes grocery shopping and he's trying to decide between ketchup or catsup. And there's an extended bit where he's got one of each bottle in each hand and he's just going, ketchup, catsup. Ketchup, catsup, and I picture Brody do or Hooper doing that with the 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 white wine and the the red wine, and then just being like, "Oh, screw it, I'll get both." Uh, yeah, Br- Hooper is so great in this uh, in this scene because of that, because of uh, his sort of reaction when. Ellen asks him, oh, so you're in Sharks. And he's just like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> like, what a bizarre way. Like, he does not hide at all that she has just asked him that, like, about his interests and career in the most insane way possible. <laughs> um, to be like, I mean, yeah, I guess so. They're not really a business, but sure. Like, <laughs> it's not like in import export. <laughs> Uh, yeah, gosh, I love Richard Dreyfus in in this scene, and like his his costuming is great too because he's sort of like okay, I'm I'm I, he's sort of dressed like he's gonna be a guest somewhere, but also his hair is something else. Like his hair is <laughs> it, it looks like Lego Man hair in in this scene a little bit. Like it's I don't really know what's going on with it, but it's the worst hair he has in the entire fi- film. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, oh gosh, it's great. And then I really like that we get his backstory a little bit about why he is into sharks and and, and became the researcher that, that he did. And it, it's not dissimilar from, I mean, it is, uh, but from, from Quint, like mm. it, it's, it's still, it's much less intense, but on some level it's still a shark attack. You know, like, uh, he obviously wasn't at war and didn't lose tons of friends to this, but he had a sort of, you know, violent encounter with a shark, and that's what got him into the creatures. And that's sort of what we get with Quint later, like, way later on in the famous speech, obviously, when we find out his backstory. And so 
I like that we're setting up now that, you know, and if you're watching this for the first time, you don't really know that Quint's going to play a major role in the back half. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of planting these seeds that you don't really actively think about. And I think that's one of the things that the script does so well is it just plants these, these subtle little things that don't like come back in your face. Uh, but it lets you figure them out. It lets you put those, those threads together. It's really, you know, Blaine, like you said, it's really smart writing and it trusts the audience to understand this. Maybe even not explicitly. Like this is the first time I've ever vocalized this out loud to anyone that he tells this story about this shark encounter and it's basically the exact same reason why quint is into sharks granted he's into hunting and kill and killing them rather than researching (laughs) them but we can understand how both men arrived at those two sides of why they pursue sharks for the for a living um well there's go ahead Oh no! There, there's another. There's another like cool foreshadowing of that whole that USS Indianapolis scene here too, because Hooper mentions that the shark that uh, kind of attacked him there and, and tore up his boat was a thresher shark. Mm-hmm. And then when everybody's drunk on the boat, like right before that USS Indianapolis scene, and they're comparing scars, um, Quint on his leg shows this the like the scar from the thresher tail, mm-hmm. and when that happens. Brody says Thresher and Hooper gives this very exasperated it's a shark. Um and it's because he's already told a that what? story. Like he's already identified that like a Thresher is a shark, but like at this point, Brody is just like in his own world. Like he's he's drunk one, um, or on his way to being there, and he's just like he's in his own head at this point. So like he didn't even he didn't even recognize that. And that's a that's such a nice touch too. Yeah, Blaine, you you have uh, just stolen my my uh, my thunder because that was the very oh, no. next thing on my notes. But no, 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 <laughs> I'm very glad you mentioned it because I noticed that for the very first time when I watched it. And MJ, don't think it's going to go unnoticed that in the background you were just the tiger shark guy. Uh, just now. <laughs> I heard I heard that a what? <laughs> As it blew your mind in real time, as it did when I was watching the clip earlier, and I was like, Thresher Shark. Why does Thresher Shark sound familiar? And I I skipped ahead and I watched the uh, Indianapolis uh, bit. Uh, I watched the whole scene, because why wouldn't you watch that whole scene? Uh, Very sorry for skipping ahead to a scene that we're not talking about, but I believe it is the law to watch uh, that scene in full whenever you stumble across it. Um, so yeah, the, the I'm I'm really glad this has has been picked up on about the the connections that there are between Hooper and Quint, and I think that this is something that we're probably going to talk about a lot going forward because I think there are other examples of that as well of these these two guys being on the one hand absolute polar opposites. You've got the sort of the rich. Uh, college boy uh, you know scientific background and then you've got Quint who is very working class and is you know uh, pursuing sharks for a different reason shall we say he is he is the hunter whereas Hooper is pursuing sharks for research purposes and because he Mm -hmm. is he has a deep love and fascination for sharks so that is the reason why he is in sharks uh, quote Um, and uh, Quint obviously is is in sharks for for a very different reason but they have so many similarities between them and the fact that they're uh, i guess the beginning of their 
journey into uh, pursuing careers in sharks, even though they, they are very different, um, started in a, in a similar way, like you mentioned, uh, MJ, and that they began with this uh, shark encounters. They were very different, obviously. Uh, Hooper, when he tells his story, it's a much shorter monologue than the Indianapolis one, but it is a monologue as he sort of gives this story and it's quite comical about the shark the thresher shark you know destroying his boat and and you know he then had to swim quickly back to shore to get away from the shark and quint's story is very very different as we know it's uh a lot more somber it's a lot uh right. more intense especially the way that he delivers it as well is very very different but yeah they they have that uh they have that connection and the fact that that little you have to wait such a long time for that thresher uh kind of punchline payoff um but it's so great <laughs> that i really laughed at hooper's delivery of this is the you know the bit in the um comparing their scars when uh hooper sort of says like it's a shark like it just <laughs> it just made this scene it just added something extra to this scene the one that we're talking about now um, because you're like, oh yeah, he did. They literally had this conversation about this exact, <laughs> this exact <laughs> shark. But Brody is completely checked out in this scene. He, the lights are on, but no one's home. I think he is very focused on opening that bottle of wine and not a lot else. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad this is the path we've gone down because I, my mind was blown when I realised, <laughs> I yeah. realised that watching it today, the the Thresher shark sort of being mentioned in those two separate places so what was funny is i'm glad you guys did the legwork or the thin work i suppose on uh <laughs> <clears throat> on doing on making that connection because when he said it i was like why why does that sound familiar like i but i didn't have time to go and like really parse out why it sounded familiar so i'm glad that that connection was made uh for my tiny little mind uh to be blown um and yeah it's uh i mean this this screenplay is no joke man it's it's really really well written and then even to your point sarah about the 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 subtle hints maybe even you won't even notice it unless you've read the book about the hooper and ellen affair um one very glad that we didn't go this way because buying who buying Richard Dreyfus as this seductor is maybe one of the <laughs> tallest orders a movie could have ever asked. Uh, but but uh, uh, aside from that, like I think it shows a really nice probably compromise between Gottlieb and Benchley um, because obviously you know eventually wrote the book and and uh he's gonna want some some of his pet stuff from the book to end up in the in the film and uh it largely <laughs> largely does a very different movie um and uh yeah it's it's just really interesting to kind of see like the the compromise that happened behind the scenes where it's like oh i want the 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 hooper allen affair in there and it's like uh no <laughs> um we're we're not gonna do that but we can throw this maybe like subtle nod in uh, for people who've read the book to maybe read into it a little bit and eventually having to be like, okay, yeah, that, you know, that works. I don't know. Do you guys know how Benchley felt about the final product? Just because I, it's so different from the book. Hmm. I don't, I, yeah. I mean, he appears in it, doesn't he? So I can't imagine he hates it. 
um but i don't yeah. i don't know conclusively yeah um also something i notice in this scene it ends with hooper saying that's why i'm going to go back to the institute tomorrow and tell them you still have a shark problem here and what he's doing is he's cleaning mm-hmm. his glasses yeah uh, did, I steal, I did i steal your thunder again <laughs> no go go ahead don't worry the last time the we saw him clean his glasses <laughs> The last time we saw him clean his glasses was right before he examined Chrissy Watkins' remains to indicate, mm-hmm. hey, I think this story is a load of BS that you're selling me. <laughs> and I am going to make it known by cleaning my glasses. Also, uh, if you took 11th grade English, you read Lord of the Flies, and you know that glasses represent uh truth or knowledge or wisdom or however however you want to read into it at least that's how it was here in california um (laughs) and uh you know we see hooper these two times where he's bringing the truth to light he's cleaning the glasses he is wiping clean he was making sure that we see things through the clearest lens possible Mm. um Mm -hmm. And that it is sharply in focus so that the point isn't missed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's uh, obviously that it, that is the thoughts that I had as well because I wrote the exact same thing in my notes. Uh, so I'm very glad that Sorry. we are all on the... No, no, it's fine. We're all on the same wavelength today and uh, you love to see it. So, uh, <laughs> but I think it's, yeah, it's it's that combination of wanting absolute clarity and also the emphasis on the thing that he is about to say being the truth. But the the other side to it as well is I think, I think it's just a hooperism as well. I think it's one of those sort of nervous slightly nervous things that he does because he is a little bit of a dork and a little bit socially awkward like we said and it seems to be something that he does a lot is sort of taking his glasses off and cleaning them and i think that it is it's certainly right that the last time we saw him do that was when he sort of again delivered that you know gut punch in the coroner's office of it you know that the shark still being you know shark being out there or it was a, a great white or whatever it was that killed Chrissy mm-hmm. and again in this scene it's you know it's it's really emphasizing that yeah this there is still a shark problem because that shark is out there but we we see it come in much much later um I think I mentioned this before when he is sort of being lowered into the the mm-hmm. shark cage and there's like a big thing made about him not being able to clean his his mask so i think it it's Mm. it's a little from column a a little from column b i think it is one of those uh sort of hooper hooper mannerisms and something that that he does maybe when he's a bit sort of a bit nervous or it's just one of those you don't even realize you're doing it sort of things i'm sure we've all got them and it's only when someone points them out that you're then like oh yeah that's a thing that i do (laughs) yeah well, and I, I, like, I think, too, to, like, that speaks to the caliber of Richard Travis's acting here. And then again to the screenwriting, because this is such a nice scene to add textures and layers to the Hooper character in a way that's not that obtrusive. So we've already kind of established a little bit in the film. You know, he's at, he's educated. He's, uh, you know, he'll be called a city boy. Um, 
all of that kind of stuff. But instead of him being kind of written as the Andy Bernard type character where he's talking about how he goes to Cornell, Cornell with every other breath, um, he, um, he is instead, uh, you know, there are just these subtle things that are worked in here. Like, I think even the fact that he like shopped for two kinds of wine, like he's kind of grown up in that world where that's kind of like an expectation that you pair a certain kind of wine with a certain kind of food. So like class is usually brought into Jaws in, in some interesting ways. And so like, that's one thing. And then he's also, there's this conversation as Ellen and Hooper are just sort of making conversation. It's like, Oh, by the way, you know, I'm about to go to this, this super fancy shark asylum to study sharks um, in a couple of days. Well, yeah. And, and he l- mentioned little layers. Okay. Yeah. He also mentions that his dad bought him the boat, um, which yeah. I guess, uh is like it, it points to him being rich although i guess brody and ellen buy michael the boat too um but it's probably easier to come by i don't know that's just kind of what you do on an island like that too yeah um we don't really know where hooper is from i think uh in the film um so we don't know if that was just kind of the culture or if that was that's also a sign of his you know growing up wealthy um or once again little column a little column b um yeah but yeah, that's that's definitely like some some real subtle character work happens in this scene, and it's really great because we just watched we just watched a film last night called uh, The Empty Man. It's a, it's a newer horror film, and I really liked it. But wow, that ending way over explains itself, mm. and it's it, that's one of my biggest pet peeves with a film where it's just like yeah. I was watching the movie, man. Like, I get it. Um, give me, like, give me some credit here to put two and two together through a story thread. Like, um, but other, like other than, and I think the other thing too is other than that, I really enjoyed the movie. And it was one of the best studio horror films I've seen in a long time. And then that part happened and it didn't totally sour me on it, but I was just like, give me some credit. Like I can, I can figure this out. I know what these words are that they're saying that they've been talking about the whole film. Like I don't need to see (laughs) this whole sequence play out. And also your movie's already two and a half hours and it's a horror movie and I want it to be an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, And so it was really refreshing actually coming off of watching that, not to just (laughs) have a a side tangent rant (laughs) about the empty man. It was really refreshing coming off of a film that way over explained itself into the world of Jaws once again, which is a film I've seen countless times. And it's not that I didn't notice these things before, but it's something that as I'm going through it minute by minute or thereabouts, uh, I can pick up on these little subtle things that they've done that I've implicitly known and subconsciously Mm -hmm. used in my, you know, previous viewings of the film to understand where these characters are coming from. But now I can see the building blocks of it and see how much the screenwriting has been used to weave those thoughts into my brain so that when the bigger moments that pay those things off happen, I have context for them and I don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. Well, I know, I know you, you all last week talked about Roy Scheider and his acting but I don't want to be on an episode and not talk about Roy Scheider. <laughs> but I really do. I, I feel like I, <laughs> I feel like his acting is so great, and I, like, he does such a great job in this scene too. Even though he says so little, it's just like the way he's picking at that wine bottle and taking his time <laughs> opening it, and like has like zero f's about like you know proper etiquette of how you open a wine bottle and all. Like he's just he's ready. 
Um, so I, I, yeah, I just love I just love his like physical acting uh, in in this segment. Mm. I think that the only he says one word in this scene. I mean, when he, when he tells um, Sean to get out of here at the start, um, but mm-hmm. the bit that I've got highlighted from the script is the only thing he says is swell. Um, and even just yeah. the just the delivery of that is so is so great, and the way he just hacks at that wine bottle as well. He's really yeah. just like he is barely taking in what Hooper is saying, as uh, we clearly realise later on, as he doesn't remember the Thresher star- Shark uh, story. But um, we've I think one of my favourite uh, Roy Scheider line deliveries is coming up in next week's episode, and I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, that's probably not going to be the last time I say that, because every scene that I watch, <laughs> I just... I'm like this is my favorite. This is my favorite Roy Scheider acting moment. Um, and yeah, it's. I probably sound like a broken record at this point. Don't care. I'm gonna keep saying it. But um, yeah, it just says says everything by saying nothing in mm-hmm. this scene. But is there's still so much to get out of watching him in this scene because we talked about that the person on the the right is the person who has the power but Brody is still in the middle so you are looking at how he is reacting to this conversation happening around him as well and he doesn't really show much interest in the conversation that's that's happening he is very focused on that bottle of wine and um the next few scenes are really fun as you just kind of get to see him get progressively drunker um, and I really enjoy that. I enjoy that this is the beginning of the uh, of the drunken spiral that we get from um, Brody. <laughs> it's really well, uh, yeah. Go on. <laughs> well, yeah, no, he he, and then he goes like him going at that wine bottle. There's a nice bridge between you know what we talk about this week and, and what you'll talk about next week with Ellen. She brings in the wine glasses to be you know a kind and gracious <laughs> person. Like he he brings this wine, so she's got the wine glasses. And then next week you all will get to talk about what happens to the wine glasses, um, <laughs> just or just what doesn't happen to one of the wine, wine. glasses. <laughs> the pint, the pint of wine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. Yeah. So uh, I completely missed this going back through with the the subtitles on. Uh, Cooper talks about he was fishing in Cape Cod. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's also very much an affluent, you know, uh, if, if you hear if people talk about fishing in Cape Cod, th- that's like a pretty big sign here that, that they're, they're very uh, well off because that yeah. is, it's sort of like the Hamptons um, or, you know, just a very upscale area of New England. So, um, and very like, like waspy um uh area to like uh like v- vampire weekend vibes is the only thing i can <laughs> i can say about it like that's 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 what i think of probably because they have a, a a song named after cape cod but like that, that's what i think of when i think of cape cod is i think of like the guys in vampire weekend <laughs> i get it i get it um yeah this is this is such a good scene. I love everything about it. And Roy Scheider is great when Hooper grabs the food and like, he doesn't even acknowledge that it's happening, but he just stares at the plate the entire time. But he doesn't, he doesn't have this look on his face 
that's like, hey, man, I was going to eat that. The look on his face is just like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, this, I don't care. This might as well be happening. That's how the day's gone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just like, what's one more freaking thing? Yeah, I think he's so checked out by this point, he almost doesn't even realize it's happening, which I find really funny. Yeah, he's it's just he's just adding it to the list of events for the day. Like he's registering that something is happening, but he has no strong feelings about it either way. Like he is completely resigned to it. <laughs> yeah, he is aggressively ambivalent in this. Uh, in this moment, he's just like, sure. He's, he's already on. latched onto the wine, so he's good to go. He's got yeah, all he needs. Said, You're doing me a solid. More room for wine. <laughs> I don't need to line my stomach. That will stop me from getting drunk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you guys have anything else in uh, this scene or in your notes? Or did we thoroughly plunder all your notes on accident, Sarah? <laughs> you guys covered everything. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I, I still got to, to talk about the things that I, um, that I had written down. But yeah, this... Uh, I felt bad uh, initially for breaking up this scene. I think that we cover it for i think it's just the next next week actually so it's it's broken up into two episodes but it being that like long take i did feel bad about stopping it at this point but there's so much to unpack as i think we've we've proven in just this little bit um and even more to to cover in next week's as well so yeah i I mean, I, I never have any doubt that we will be able to get, like, an hour-long conversation out of a, like, less-than-two-minute clip, but I'm I'm real proud of us uh, for all being very much in tune with each other on this episode <laughs> without realizing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Blaine, thank you for coming on, man. It was so good to, to have you on and, and talk about a film that we've gone back and forth about on social media uh, constantly. Yeah, thank you. This was so much. This was so much fun. It was it was a joy to get to come on the show as a huge fan um, of both your show and and Jaws. Um, which, by the way, your theme song is is my uh, cell phone ringtone. So what? Uh, t- so there you go. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh uh, yeah, I will let Kristen know. She will she will be over the moon when she hears that. That'll that'll make her day. Um. I got a text last week. She doesn't listen to the show, so I'm just, like, building her up for... Not for no reason, but just, like, she's never going to hear this. <laughs> I got a text from the other day from Missy, our uh, the co-host on my other show, and she was just like, man, that theme song is so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was like, I'm catching up, and that theme song is... It's a straight-up banger, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I love when people were, like, catching up on episodes, and obviously the first few don't have the theme song, and then pretty much everyone who then gets to the episode the first episode with the theme song we then get a tweet from them just being like the theme song slaps and it's like yeah it does yeah (laughs) yeah and that's the 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 thing too is like i feel like because people don't know me really uh so we've gotten several people who are like oh yeah well mj's obviously hyping up his wife um and that's the only reason he's been talking up the theme song over the episodes and then they get to it and they're like oh no that's a legitimately incredible song and uh yeah yeah that yes it is like um and it's it's definitely one of those things where 
she knows it too and uh you know not to like air everything about my wife without her being here to defend herself like she's not the type of person who would just do that like she's she's not kanye you know like um you know it's it's something that she's really proud of and i think it comes out in the in the theme song like in general that it just like it really came together really well so uh we're like we're all really proud of the song even though i contributed zero to it Yeah, anyway, uh, Blaine, where can people find you on social media if they would like to uh, follow you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Home1Blaine. Uh, I'm usually on there talking about board games or Jaws with MJ, so so you can join me there. And then I also have a, a podcast that is on indefinite hiatus now. It's a Star Wars podcast that I have with a, with a great friend and co-host called Home One Radio. Um, so you can check that out wherever podcasts are are distributed. Um, and even though we are on hiatus, we've got a hundred plus episodes there for you to listen to. And hopefully, sometime in the future, we might be able to to make a return. But you know, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench in our our life, like it did for most people. So podcast is on hiatus for now. Yeah, I get it. Uh, and then I started a podcast during the pandemic. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, what do I know? <laughs> Uh, but thank you guys for listening we appreciate every listen we get uh, whether you interact with us or not we would love for you to interact with us and you can interact with us on our social medias you can interact with the show itself Uh, not that the show is sentient it's just us running the the thing Uh, it's uh, at Jaws for a minute on Twitter Uh, if you want to follow Sarah you can follow her at Sarah Buttery that's S-A-R-A-H-B-U-D-D-E-R-Y on Twitter. You can follow me at MJSmith891 on Twitter. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, drop us a line, give us some feedback, let us know that you also host the Jaws Minute by Minute podcast. Uh, <laughs> you can you can email us at jawsforaminute at gmail.com and uh, yeah, give us your, your hot takes and uh, if you want to argue about Roy Scheider, uh, you best not miss, I'll say that, but uh, you, can, you can try. Um, and if you would like to give some public feedback, we would love that. Uh, go rate us and review us and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. I think the two primary things we look at are Spotify and Apple. So if you want to go there and leave us a review, please do. Um, we've gotten really good feedback and uh, we appreciate that. We read it all because we are obsessed with ourselves. No, um, it's just it's just nice to know that people are into what we're doing because I think we all really like uh, what we're doing as well. So um, if you would like to support us uh, directly, you can buy us a coffee or a Jaws hot dog and uh, <laughs> do that through uh, the coffee website. There's a link in the bio on Twitter to do that, along with a link to buy some merch. There are two incredible designs. My Stimmy hit this week and I need to order my uh, Jaws o'clock somewhere swag <laughs> because it is my favorite. Um piece of merchandise for maybe anything i've ever seen it's so good uh and once again not just blowing smoke it's legitimately great and you guys should go check it out and buy uh everything you can with that uh, any either one of our incredible designs on it because um shout out to uh heck shadow is that his name on twitter yep alex my good friend alex, alex. <laughs> yep uh for designing that for us go follow him and his uh excellent design skills and by his book his children's book that came out uh that he did illustrations for and yeah uh until next time 
It's Jaws o'clock somewhere.